The story starts with a bus trip along a dusty road in the Himalayan nation of Nepal. So it's 20 kilometres northeast of Kathmandu in a region called Sanku. Two-hour two hour bus, it's a long 20 kilometres. And I arrived there with the sole purpose of just to get to know Nepal. Do, do the volunteering, do the labouring for the school project we were doing at the time. The project was the brainchild of NGO From the Ground Up, rebuilding a school that had been destroyed in the earthquake in 2015. And Scott, that is Scott McEwen, the man on the bus, wanted to use his background in engineering to help any way he could. I'm a final year civil engineering student. Scott's also a teacher or a facilitator of a summer course being taught at the University of Technology, Sydney. But we'll get to that later. He says that at first when he arrived in Nepal, he saw the village as an engineer does, as a set of problems. The roads are unsealed, there's no drainage, there's, there's rubble and bricks all over the streets and they also have a very different topography, everything's very vertical. But while he was living there and getting to know the people and their personalities, he began to realise there was a lot more going on here than just construction projects. He started to get involved with community life. When it's someone's birthday, you all go to this one little house and you're all sitting in this one room, shoulder to shoulder, just having, having a great meal and really learning about, the, I guess, the community. And the more he was learning about the community, he stopped seeing them as problems to be solved. Instead, he saw how everything and everyone was connected. In this one village that we work in, there's two children in the family and both their parents died in the earthquake. We thought, OK, so they're going to go to a, an orphanage or what are they going to do? And they were like, oh, no, no, they, they live now with their neighbours. It's like, oh, are they uncles or aunties? No, no, they're just their neighbours, so now they're, they're kids. And for me, it's something like that's not something that would ever happen here, here in Sydney, Australia. Like, I wonder how many people don't even know their neighbours. Scott's job as an engineer wasn't as straightforward as he thought. Building a school meant more than just building walls and doors. It's not just about, I guess, the physical infrastructure in building, but it's also the social infrastructure that comes around it. His skills were limited if their project wasn't also trying to rebuild the social networks around the school. And not just go there and build a school, but say students come out of those schools, they can go into different job paths and create better opportunities. And when Scott got back to Sydney, he found what he learned in Nepal wasn't matching up to what he was being taught in uni. Engineers can invent, design, build and test, but a vital skill was missing. Communication skills are the typical shortcomings of, of engineers because it's very typical for engineers by nature to be very solution-based and to also struggle to work collaboratively. In his classes, Scott was learning how to build things, but he wanted to know more than that. So what are we actually building? Why are we building it? Who's going to use it? So he did something about it. This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Shane Anderson. We tend to think that we can just invent our way out of any problem. When it comes to some of the biggest problems we're facing as a planet, we're starting to realise that if we really want to fix things, we have to change our approach. This episode is about engineers not just trying to solve the problems of today, but the problems of the future, and how they're finding the solution isn't always more technology. 
are all involved in change on an everyday basis. We constantly bring about change and deal with change that is imposed on us, whoever we are. This is Abbas El Zain, Professor of Environmental Engineering at the University of Sydney. What engineers tend to do is offer a particular kind of change in which technology is fundamental. Abbas says engineers have been instrumental in all major inventions and infrastructure over the past couple of hundred years, whether they intended it or not. Mobile phone is an interesting example where engineers have come up with the technology of mobile phones, not because the need particularly arose from society, but because there was a dynamic of technological innovation that led to that, and this in turn led to social change. People have been using applied maths and sciences to devise clever solutions to our problems since humans have been able to use tools. The wheels, the pyramids, the ancient Roman aqueducts are all major feats of engineering. But we can really look at modern engineering coming into Western societies at the time of the Industrial Revolution. Where big engineering became important, became the kind of engineering that that was orthodox. Abbas says that before this, engineers were basically freelancers working small gigs here and there. This new big engineering of the Industrial Revolution, the huge public works, the major bridges, roads and railways that allowed for global economic expansion, this needed more than freelancers. And therefore, big engineering requires either the state to provide the resources for it or the corporate world. The money for these huge projects had to come from somewhere, and so engineers became integrated with the corporations that were bankrolling these jobs. And things have basically stayed the same to this day. Abbas thinks that in most situations, having engineers embedded in a business works out pretty well for everyone involved. That is, most situations, but not all. The problem, of course, arises when there is conflict between greater social good and corporate demand. Because you are just one part of a big organisation, you might be designing a certain piece of technology, but you have no say over how it will be used or what impact it might have in the future. If you happen to work for a coal miner, if you happen to have a belief that emissions from coal shouldn't, uh, shouldn't be allowed, how do you navigate that? This is a relatively straightforward example. Most people know where they stand on coal and know what impact it has. But not every problem is so easy to spot. Where the ethical questions become really interesting and hard is if you happen to be, for example, uh, a middle-ranking engineer in a corporation uh, who is asked to create a design which you know could be used for unethical reasons, what do you do then? Something might be perfectly fine now, but could be used for the wrong reasons by someone else further down the track, like building something that can be used for defence, knowing it can also be used as a weapon. What's more, it's not always clear when something isn't ethical, or you're not sure what long-term impacts a design will have. Take, for example, seawalls. So seawalls are talked about a lot nowadays, particularly in Australia, in all coastal areas. Seawalls are a staple of our coastline. And we've been using them not just in Australia, but all around the world to protect our homes from floods and ocean swells. We like seawalls, and whenever we go to the beach, we see them in action, doing their job of keeping the ocean at bay. Ultimately, they do what they're designed to do. But there's a problem here. 
can give you a false sense of safety. One of the really strong certainties of climate change science is that sea level rise will continue for centuries, if not millennia. As our global temperatures rise, the heat stored in our oceans will continue to expand and the ice caps will continue to melt. The sea level will rise. You might build a seawall today, which might work for you for the next 20 or 25 years, but not later. Seawalls also speed up coastal erosion on the ocean-facing side of the wall, something which, in turn, speeds up the destruction of the coastline and cuts the life expectancy of the wall yet again. So if your only job is to figure out a way to protect the houses of the people living on the coast, seawalls are doing a great job. But they have an impact that goes well beyond the design brief. We, a lot of countries, built way too close to the coastline for this to be sustainable in the long term. Had they made that decision in a more smart way and decided, worked out where it's rational to build and where it's not rational to build, rather than continue building in places that are too close to the ocean, and it might have turned out much better. And this isn't necessarily a problem for 50 years from now. Some cities are already feeling the impact of short-term thinking when it comes to design. Good evening. Thanks for joining us on this special edition of World News Tonight this Sunday. Tonight, the disaster in Texas in the wake of Hurricane Harvey is deepening. Houston is a city in crisis. In August 2017, Hurricane Harvey made landfall in Texas, and it dropped the same amount of rain in Houston in one storm than what usually falls in one year. The city was wiped out and around 20 people were killed. However, some experts have called this not a natural disaster, but a man-made one. Houston was built over the top of grasslands and marshes. These are natural landscapes that hold water, so when something like a hurricane sweeps through, they can actually absorb most of the rain. But growing development in the region has changed that. Over the past 15 years, there's been a 25% increase in concrete over the top of these grasslands. Now, when the rain falls, it has nowhere to go. This isn't the fault of engineers. This is an incredibly complex problem and we can't point the finger at one person or one group. But it is problems like these that engineers can fix. And there's a new crop of engineering students who want to use their skills to tackle global problems. And not just the environment, but who want to tackle poverty and health. Students who want to see what good their work can do and who feel a sense of responsibility towards communities that they work in. And we're going to meet some of these students coming up next. Welcome back to Think Digital Futures. I mentioned at the top of the show that Scott wasn't just a student. Well, when he got back to uni, he brought the human-centred approach with him. He started to reach out to his lecturers... He was worried students were missing out on opportunities to design projects with a tangible impact on disadvantaged communities. And now he's not just a student, but he's facilitating a whole subject on the topic. It's called Humanitarian Design Studio, and its aim is to get students working on projects that could be used to help Nepalese communities affected by the earthquake. Uh, my name's Scott, final year civil engineering student. Um, as a facilitator, hoping to get out of this studio, it's enabling students to develop 
projects that can be used, implemented and handed over as, as realistic as it can as well as being a, a subject itself. It's run a little different to your average lecture hall. It's a small room and the students listen to guest lectures while working on their own personal design projects. In this subject we partner with a non-profit and they come in and have a regular presence. Scott says this works in everyone's best interest. It really makes it worth something so that it's still, it's still a six credit point full weight subject but it also means that the students are learning and contributing in a way that actually provides value for those communities as well. And then also Today, the class is run by Sam Perkins. My name's Sam Perkins. I'm the Director of Education and Research in Engineers Without Borders, which is an organisation based in Melbourne. Uh, at least our headquarters is based in Melbourne. And the first thing you notice about this class is that the students come from all areas of engineering. I'm Natalie and I'm in my like, fourth-ish year of um, mechanical and mechatronics engineering. I'm really interested in humanitarian engineering and the way that it's like practically applied in the real world. Fantastic. Great. Thank you. My name is Emiya and I'm a third year civil engineering student. I'm interested in humanitarian engineering because I've realised that humanitarian engineering has been hidden in engineering field itself. First, Sam asked the class to think about Nepal the same way Scott was thinking of it when he was driving into the community for the first time. He asked them to identify their problems. Okay, uh, flooding. Landslides. Yep. Just the mountains in general, I reckon. That makes it very Sam then yes, gets the students to look at this list of problems and see how they would feel if someone came to them with this list about their home. Can you really add to that? Just come in and you go, this is everything that's wrong with you. It's a little bit rude. Like, it's not hugely motivating, is it? No. It's not hugely empowering. And potentially, not only will it stop a community from wanting to work with me, but potentially it will stop them or, or disempower them from wanting to work together. Next, the students rewrite the list. But instead of spotting the problem, Sam gets them to reverse it. Now the students have to list the strengths. I guess social improvement. Yeah. A growing emphasis on, on education. Yeah. Elections are now getting a bit more stable. And the students actually find it easier to empathise with the communities when they're trying to think of all the good stuff rather than focusing on the bad. If you developed a solution from this set, um, it'd be obviously far more like, uh, more likely that it would succeed or be taken up by the community rather than just looking at it from a problem base and then saying, right, we can solve that with flying cars or you know, yeah. something that isn't really actually... It could almost fit into, like... Back to the design thing, like the empathizing phase, because like they probably know most of their problems, and like this is a good way of seeing things more holistically because they probably also see the good parts of this. What Sam is teaching these students is called human centered design, and while this kind of thinking is familiar to architects and designers, it's new to engineering. Human centered thinking is putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And while it might seem obvious, like something we should all be doing anyway, Sam says it's easy for experts like engineers to fall into a trap of feeling like they know best. And in a developing country, this can mean you end up with more problems. A human-centred solution isn't always the most obvious solution to an engineer. It means really listening. The problems that we see on the surface aren't necessarily the underlying problems that a community would prioritise. And so it's, it's really sitting down and taking the time to understand the landscape from 
a community's perspective and how you with a particular set of skills can fit into a broader network of strengths. Yeah, are there any times in your own experience where there's been a technological solution that a community hasn't wanted? Yeah, they have one very interesting example that I think the the introduction of fuel-efficient cookstoves or clean cookstoves, a relatively common approach to cooking in many developing contexts. Your standard cookstove is indoors. It's where you rest a pot on top of three stones, underneath which there's a fire. This isn't good for long-term health. It takes hours and hours to cook a meal, all the while you're breathing in toxic fumes. World Vision estimates about 1.6 million deaths each year caused by smoke inhalation from open fires indoors. These deaths are mostly women and children because culturally they tend to be the ones doing the cooking or hanging around the fire. This is where a fuel-efficient cookstove comes in. They burn less fuel, cut air pollution and cooking times. They're easy to build and they're readily available. But they have a low uptake. One of the major barriers isn't technical in nature. It's relatively easy to create a fuel-efficient cookstove. Overcoming cultural boundaries and cultural preferences is much, much more challenging. Is it easy to just walk in and be like, hey, what are you after? I can make it for you? Yeah, I mean, I guess I could flip that on its head. Is How would you feel if someone walked into your kitchen and started potentially questioning the way you were cooking or the way you were using the stove that was in your kitchen? It doesn't always come across as, as something that's positive. And I think that's where we're really not looking at walking in. We're looking at spending time to be invited in. Does it take longer then to fulfil a project? Not necessarily. Some projects can take an an awfully long time. But I think if you're looking at projects that have a high success rate, starting with, say, a people or a community-centred approach will actually lead to long-term sustainable solutions far quicker. So Engineers Without Borders has been around since 2004. And as a movement, humanitarian engineering has only been growing for the past 10 or so years. In academic years, humanitarian engineering is still a baby. And it's really been the groundswell of support from students that's been pushing it to the fore. Students like Scott want to know how they can make positive social change. They want to help fix the biggest problems facing our future. The question is, can they do it? Can engineers save the planet? Humans can save the planet. I think the kind of challenges that we're facing now, they are unprecedented. So I think it's a question that is much bigger. Of course, we have a role to play, and we have an important role to play, like doctors, like lawyers. We have a privileged position in society, and it's a position of power. And so we have the capability of influencing. Definitely don't subscribe to the idea that there might be some technological solution. That's not going to solve our problem. listening to Think Digital Futures. This show is supported by the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER and broadcast right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We also have a website. It is 2SER.com slash thinkdigitalfutures. Head there for more info on this episode. Also remember to subscribe to us on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. And while you're there, leave a review. Thanks to Scott McEwen, Abbas Zane, Sam Perkins and Eva Chang for this episode. You heard music from Little Glass Men and Blue Dot Sessions. My name is Shane Anderson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>